0: At In the movie Norma Ray, there's a dramatic scene where the lead character, played by Sally Field, is going to be arrested for transcribing a racist flyer that management is using to thwart efforts to unionize the cotton mill where she's working. Awaiting the sheriff, Norma Ray writes Union on a piece of cardboard, stands on her work table, and slowly turns to show the sign around the room. One by one, the workers turn off their machines, and the cacophony of the factory gives way to silence. At the end of the movie, there's a successful vote to unionize the factory. That movie was released in 1979, and since then, the American union movement has been faltering, but perhaps we're beginning to see a reemergence. Two Starbucks stores in the Buffalo area voted to unionize late last year, and 18 other Starbucks stores have filed petitions for union elections. There is a high-profile vote to unionize at an Amazon warehouse in spring 2021 that lost, but the National Labor Relations Board found that Amazon improperly interfered with the election, and a new vote will occur this spring. Do these actions... And the fact that President Biden is viewed by labor leaders as one of the most union-friendly presidents in memory mean that there is, in fact, a resurgence of union strength? And if this happens, what are some likely outcomes? That is, what do unions do? To answer these questions, I'm very pleased to welcome to Econofact Chats, Aaron Sojourner, a labor economist at the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management. Aaron has published widely on labor market issues. In addition, he served as a senior economist for labor on the Council of Economic Advisors, and he's a fellow in the U.S. Senate's Labor Policy Office. Aaron, very glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks,
1: Michael. Glad to
0: be here. Aaron, to set the stage for this, what's been happening to middle-class wages in the United States over the past 40 years, in the time since Norma Rae appeared in movie theaters?
1: Not much. I mean, the main thing that's happened is a lot of stagnation. Uh, we've seen a lot of productivity growth. We see workers producing a lot more per hour, but wages haven't kept up, especially for t- typical workers.
0: So if they're producing more, they should get the reward of it, but that's not been happening, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: I think at the high end, we've seen a lot of growth at, you know, at top earners' wages, um, but for middle class and working class folks, much less so.
0: So, over this period, Aaron, what's happened to union
1: membership? It's fallen. It's fallen and it's continued to fall. So, you know, in the late 50s, unionization was at its height. It was, you know, basically one in three workers were in a union. Uh, now it's about only 6% of private sector workers are in a union. Um, so, and it's been a pretty steady decline
0: uh, over that whole period, so maybe Sally Field should have been standing on more tables in more factories. yeah, I mean I,
1: if you're, if you're a labor leader or you're interested in labor activism it's, uh, it's been a bad run here uh, for the last uh, seventy years. So has she been showing up at Starbucks? What's going on with that? <laughs> I think there are you know a lot of union there are some unions that are being pretty strategic and pretty aggressive uh, trying to get people focused on unionization as a way to improve their their work life. And I think you're seeing it catch fire in certain places. You know, there's a lot of sparks uh, flaring up here and there. and. Um, So it's hard to know from the outside how much of it is driven by sort of workers locally having this idea and reaching out to unions, or how much of it is sort of unions being proactively strategic and reaching
0: out to workers. So let's first think about wages. Economists have provided a range of reasons for middle-class wage stagnation, globalization and the international outsourcing of jobs, the rise of automation and computers. A stagnant real value of the minimum wage. Where do you see the decline in unionization fitting in among these reasons, and for which workers?
1: Well, you know, the change in unionization is connected to a lot of those uh, factors. So, the fact that we have a lot more globalization and and it's easier for companies to produce overseas now than it was before, that puts pressure on American workers' wages. Uh, you know, if they're competing with workers they weren't competing with before, uh, technology. You know, again, in some instances it make it sort of does tasks that workers used to make a living doing. In other cases, it opens up new kinds of jobs or new kinds of uh, productivity and earning opportunities. So it's complicated stuff. Um, a lot of it, though, is is you know connected to policy too. So. We've seen a weakening of labor uh, rights and organizing rights law in the U.S., so we see uh, it becoming harder and harder for workers to organize themselves. Um, you know, people have done pretty careful studies to try to disentangle this, all these different factors, and I think it's fair to say that you know maybe twenty percent, thirty percent of the uh, rise in inequality. Or the decline is,
0: you know, directly attributable to this decline in unionization, right? So you're making the point that maybe unionization is itself a feature of greater globalization and automation because the threat of firing people keeps them from joining unions. But then there is also this policy issue you raised, and I guess one of the things people think about is when President Reagan started out, he busted the Air Traffic Controllers Union. That was seen as a turning point, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely, it was. Um, You know, if you look at the data, it's hard to see it in the in the data, though, because there wasn't you know a big trend break there. But it certainly did change the mood, and it did change, I think, management's willingness to be aggressive in fighting unions. And you know, it was a signal from the top that management should go hard uh, to fight unions, uh, kind of a permission to do that.
0: So one place that we've seen greater unionization is in the public sector. Is that right? Yeah,
1: that's absolutely right. So it's in the 60s and 70s especially, there was a, he- a big spike in public sector unionization. Uh, Wisconsin was the first state to allow recognized public sector workers right to organize, and then Kennedy signed an executive order Uh, for federal workers. Um, And yeah, so now about 30% of uh, public sector workers are in unions. At the same time, only 6% of private
0: sector workers. And we're seeing greater activism among public sector unions. I'm thinking in particular of teachers striking. And what this is illustrating to me is this is not a concern about wages. It's a concern about working conditions, in particular, classroom safety during the pandemic. And then this illustrates an important point that unions are not just about wages, but also about working conditions. You have an account of fact memo with Brigham Franston and John Budd in which you discuss what unions do. So what are some of the actions unions take about working conditions? Yeah, jobs are really complicated
1: objects, right? It's not just a wage. It's, it's a whole bundle of working conditions and responsibilities and job tasks and rights that you have. Uh, so unions can bargain over all those things. Unions can advocate and workers can advocate to change any and all of those things and try to get the employers to you know, set up the rules the way that the workers want uh, the rules to be. And you know, an individual worker alone can go talk to their manager and, and ask for that. They can say, I'm I'm gonna leave if you don't do it, sort of the ultimate threat. But you know, through joining together with other workers, workers increase their bargaining power. And, you know, the people who own big companies, they have collective bargaining agents, right? They don't individually negotiate with workers. They they hire a collective bargaining agent. It's called a manager, and the manager represents the owners of the firm and negotiates on their behalf with workers, with customers, with suppliers. So you know people who own big companies. They they understand the value of collective bargaining, uh, and they engage in it themselves. But they prefer that the people they're bargaining with don't, because um, it restricts their unilateral management
0: flexibility. So it's like the union saying solidarity forever and solidarity gives you power because it allows you to bargain from a position of greater power. Yeah, that's right. Aaron, some people might argue that there already are lots of rules and regulations that protect workers' rights and so unions aren't that important. What would you say to that?
1: Well, the main thing is that unions still are important in that environment because it gives workers the security and the assurance of knowing that if they report violations of their rights, that they're not standing alone when they do that. And so union members are both like more educated about their rights, they're more likely to know what their rights are under the law, and they're more likely to advocate for themselves. You know, to have their rights respected. So, you know, union members are more likely to file complaints with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, for instance, about workplace health hazards. Um, and, you know, that right now enforcement agencies have very little, very few resources. Th- these are like, there are millions of firms, millions of workplaces, and there's very few actual enforcement agents to police those beats. So um, they really rely on workers to
0: report and come forward. Right. It's not like they go and raid places to find out if there are OSHA violations, but they depend upon people reporting them. And as you say, people are more likely to report them if they feel somebody's got their back.
1: Yeah. So I think it's really true that even with Rights on paper and rights in the law to make those rights real in people's lives, you know it's not enough to just rely on public agencies to do that. Um, you know, workers can join together and advocate for their themselves um and that makes those rights real
0: in their lives. There's a bumper sticker, Aaron that says unions the people who brought you the five day work week, yeah, so that's now in law. There are these regulations in law, I suppose, on working hours and so on. But it's the fact that, you know, perhaps unions did this. so in some way, are unions a victim of their own success?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, you know unions, for instance, they started the first unemployment insurance systems where their members would chip in. You know, a few pennies every hour they worked. And then if they got laid off, they could collect uh, insurance payments from the fund. And then later the union said, hey, look, we, we, there's a great idea. Our members really benefit from having this and, and our employers do too. And this should be something that's available to every worker and it should be something that all employers contribute to. So let's go fight at the legislature and get uh, this extended to all workers. And they did, and they succeeded. And they, you know, we set up the unemployment insurance system. Similarly, for occupational safety and health, for uh, overtime after forty hours, things like that, right? Um, but once that's done, then sort of the union advantage for a worker is smaller compared to what it was before, because now those benefits exist uh, at non-union places too. It does
0: create a sort of victim of your own success situation. So that suggests that there are these spillover effects from unions that even non-union workers benefit from them. Is that seen more widely than just legislation? Yeah.
1: So as you sure see it with legislation, um, but you do see it also just indirect bargaining at workplaces too. So when in sectors where workers are able to uh, drive up compensation and benefits and working conditions through unions, You know the non-union employers look at that and they think, well, if I don't match that, you know, maybe my workers are going to try to organize a union too. And, you know, I can, maybe I'll face high costs and a union, or I could just, you know, voluntarily raise wages and benefits to try to Get close to that standard and thereby like substitute out a union. Like the workers won't feel the need to organize because they're basically getting everything uh, without a union.
0: Aaron, I remember a long time ago there were these ads on look for the union label, and I haven't seen those in a long time. (laughs) Yeah. But it kind of points to the fact that unions also have a public policy role, either through things like trying to change public opinion or actually lobbying. So what kind of role have we seen that unions play in, say, public opinion or perhaps more importantly, in lobbying for legislation?
1: Yeah, I think this is a hugely underappreciated role of unions and a, and a huge uh, benefit that they have. You know, there's a lot of policy fights over rules of the workplace and social insurance and other policies, big policies that affect a lot of people, and the people who are very wealthy, they can write big checks. You know, the Koch brothers, uh, they can mobilize. They can they spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year, uh, hiring armies of lobbyists and experts to and paying politicians and things like political activists. To push the policies they want. And it might be good for them, but, you know, and they're willing to finance that by writing a check. But it might be bad for everyone on balance. You know, it might hurt the interests of a lot of people. But those people don't have the resources one by one to write checks. You know, you you need a way to collect a little bit of money from every one of those people to mobilize into that fight. And so unions um, serve that purpose. Unions you know, gather resources from workers and then put those into policy debates and political fights uh, and represent the interests of, of the broader uh, set of working families. So I think that's an underappreciated role they play, sort
0: of um, creating more balance in the political system. So... Aaron, a standard argument against unions is that they hurt the overall productivity in the economy. Is there any real evidence of this? Um, I think that the evidence
1: says on balance, it's kind of a wash. You know, there's there's definitely some ways that unions can hurt productivity at, at firms. And I think they do in some firms, you know, on balance. But in other firms and by other mechanisms, they raise productivity, too. Um, you know, They hurt by reducing the profit levels, the profit rates that investors get by shifting you know, value from owners of the firm to workers. And that reduces profit rates, and so it might reduce the incentive to invest and innovate uh, in that enterprise. It might reduce you know, effort of workers if they feel like they have a lot of job security. But on the other hand, it also lets workers um, feel more inspired by their high wages and benefits and like be willing to maybe put forth more effort to hang on to those jobs. Uh, it might also create incentives for workers, sorry, for firms to Invest in training and skill development, uh, and you know keep workers around longer term to develop them. Um, so it can raise productivity by some mechanisms, lower it by others. And um, I think you know there's a lot of variety in what it does in different places. Unions aren't just one thing. Unions are different everywhere they exist, uh, just like, you know, firms are or people or um, churches or, you know, any other kind of organization like that. There's a lot of variety and um, yeah. So I think the evidence on balance is that there's not much of an effect, maybe a small negative effect on productivity.
0: Um, Even if there's a small negative effect, you know, there's this issue in economics often on the trade off between equity and efficiency. So maybe we're willing to have a little bit more equity with a little bit less efficiency, but you're suggesting maybe even the efficiency loss isn't that big. Yeah,
1: that's right. I think uh, we've seen a huge explosion in inequality uh, in our in our country and in in the global economy, and that's true if you think about wealth. That's true if you think about labor income. If you think about like high earners versus middle and lower earners. But it's also true between like people who make their income from capital versus people who make their income from labor and unions I think the main effect they have is shifting value from capital to labor uh, and, you know, finding ways to in- make jobs better for workers, and then also the political stuff,
0: engaging in policy fights. So to conclude, Aaron, I'd like to ask you to look forward a little bit. We're living in a period now that some people have called the great resignation. Other people have called the great renegotiation, a time when workers seem to be gaining bargaining power. What do you see as the implications of this for unionization? Does it make unionization more likely or maybe less likely because maybe they're seen as not as needed and workers individually might have a little bit more power now? I would bet on that it helps
1: unions and helps workers who want to unionize and we, we'd see more unionization. I don't know that we'll see a big resurgence or, or um yeah, but I think it, a lot of things have to break right for that. Um, you know, I think economically it's true that individual workers have more leverage right now than ever in recent decades. You know, if you look at the number of job openings per worker who's looking for a job, or you look at the number of quits per the number of people who are laid off by their employer, like labor has a lot of power right now. Um, And I think workers want to try to, there's been so much change in how jobs work. I think workers are really looking for ways to uh, assert and shape their job conditions. and public opinion has shifted sharply in the last eight years towards being pro-union uh, and anti-big business so if you look at public opinion data back to the sixties right now public sentiment is more pro-union than any time uh, in the last you know sixty years uh, and it's more anti-big business than any time in the last sixty years and that you know so the gap is bigger than ever before so I think there's uh, a lot of factors pushing for um, unionization to be more successful or organizing to be more successful. Um, so we'll see. I don't know if the current institutions will be able to take advantage of that or you know drive wins for people, turn that into organizational strength. But the fundamental idea that like workers share interests together vis-a-vis their employers and you know can do better by joining together to push those interests. Like that's not going away. The institutional forms that we've had for 70 years, maybe those aren't the ones that are going to be dominant in the future. Maybe there's going to be some new forms of organization that harness technology differently and you know, just different business models of, of organizing, basically. Um, but I think we'll see innovation. I think we'll see a lot of innovation in the decades ahead.
0: Well, I guess we can always look to see if the song, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, becomes more popular again. <laughs> a leading indicator, for sure. Thanks a lot, Aaron, for this very interesting discussion. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.aconifact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.